Welcome to this week's message from Pastor Jeff Spooniebarger at First Baptist Church, Gulf Breeze, located in the heart of Gulf Breeze, Florida. Open your Bibles, if you will, to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 44. And then we're going to look at several other passages from there. But I want to jump off here at Acts chapter 2. Um, last week, uh, last Saturday, I, um, I woke up. I was in Missouri. It was, uh, we, we had hunted last week in Missouri. We were going to get up Saturday morning early and drive home. My brother and I were, were there hunting. And I woke up with an irritated eye. And it wasn't but maybe five or ten minutes of me scratching my eye that I realized that I wasn't going to be able to see because the eye was in such pain that um, it was just, it was a bad situation. So my brother decided he would drive and I sat in the passenger seat and I just rode for 12 hours with my eyes closed. Uh, that's a long trip with your eyes closed in case you're wondering. And so, but here's the thing, after about two or three hours of driving, um, my eyes had been closed this whole time. I wasn't sleeping. I was just kind of enduring, you know, with the throbbing pain of my left eye. By the way, it was just some sort of a scratch, and it's getting better. Um, Michael said to me, he said, whoa, these, these roads are slippery. And I'm like, well, I just thought that was normal driving for you, but <laughs> those part of his family understand that completely. And <laughs> that was his wife, in case you're wondering. <laughs> and, and he says, I wish we would have gotten all this snow this week while we were hunting. I'm like, Huh? Because, yeah, there's snow everywhere. It's, it's, it's white snow everywhere, and the roads are icy. I'm like, seriously? So I cracked open my eye, because, you know, when you have an eye issue, you're sensitive to light. And so I, like, squeeze, like, like, pried my eye open, and sure enough, there was snow everywhere. And I thought, man, what a bummer. I'm missing the beauty of the snow because I'm worried about or because I'm dealing with my eye. And, and I can't explain it, but it kind of hit me because I knew this message. I was actually supposed to preach this last Sunday. It was like, you know, that's exactly what we're talking about. Disunity in a church causes a church to not be able to see what's going on outside of themselves because they're so focused on what's going on inside of themselves. So I missed the beauty of that whole trip because I had an issue internally going on. And the fact is the enemy, the devil has used the same trick for centuries and for generations since the beginning of time. The best way to stop a movement, the best way to stop an army, the best way to disrupt anything good is to cause division in its leaders and in its people. And so that's why in the Bible we have this constant reminder, not just a reminder, but this constant command for the people of God to be one, to be unified, to be together in heart and in mind. And so that's what we're talking about today because we're looking at what a healthy church is. Okay, so I have this graphic that you can see up here. This is the, this is the, the, the path we've taken so far for the last several weeks, okay? A healthy church is a grounded church. That's a church that has a solid foundation. Our grounding first and foremost, is in God's word. From cover to cover, 100%, if God says it, we believe it, because God's word is the ultimate authority for us. That's what grounds us, right? 
But not just God's word as a grounding, but we also have roots and we have a history. So we know where we've come from. We happen to be a Southern Baptist church. There's a reason for that. But the grounding gives us the basis by which we understand that we have a clear mission and a purpose. So a healthy church is clear on its mission and purpose. And, you know, we don't have to create that. We don't have to spend all kinds of time trying to figure out, hmm, what is our mission? What is our purpose? Because Jesus, the head of the church, had already given it to us. In Luke chapter 2, we see this vision, this mission, and this purpose. So we know why we're here. And then a healthy church is full of great faith. We don't just have little faith. We have great faith. Why? Because we're clear on our mission and purpose, and we are a grounded church, and a grounded church in God's word knows that God speaks truth. So we have faith in everything that God has said. And because of our great faith, a healthy church is a praying church. That means we're in communion with God. That's a way that we are dependent upon him, not just in the big things, but also in the little things. And because we're a praying church, we're also a worshiping church. And as Saga so wonderfully pointed out last week, worship is not just what we do on Sunday morning with songs. Worship is a lifestyle. Worship is giving adoration and praise to the God who saved us. And because we're a worshiping church, we're also a unified church. Now, here's an interesting thing. You cannot be a worshiping church, a praying church, a, a, a full of great faith, clear on mission, a purpose, and a grounded church if you're not unified. Everything below this breaks down if we're not one. Everything. That's why division within the church has always been a problem. As a matter of fact, the church got it right for about four chapters. That's it. In, in Acts chapter 2, we see that the church was, was formed and the church was, um, was growing. Uh, I lost my place here. And they were, they, were, they were practicing being unified. And in chapter 2, verse 44, the Bible says, Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, what does that mean? It says that all believers were together. That means they valued each other. They valued being together. And it wasn't just a once a week thing for them. It was a day by day thing. The church, the people of God became their family. Now, here's what you have to understand about that. When you were born again in the early church days, when you came to faith in Christ... You, in a lot of ways, were removed or excommunicated from your family. It's the same way today in, over in the East, in Asia and in, you know, in India and China. If you trust in Jesus Christ, oftentimes your family will say, you are no longer part of our family. And so you become this, this wanderer. And the only person, you, the only family you now have are the people of God because you, you trust in the, same, in the same Christ. And so your new family becomes the family that you rely on and want to be with. I remember talking to a pastor several years ago in India. And uh, we were at his church, a small church way out in the, the, the countryside of this big city of Hyderabad. And as we were talking to him, I remember just being in awe that, that his whole life was enveloped by his, his life in the church. And he actually slept there in the building. And so I was, as I was asking his story, here's what he said. He said, I was not a believer. I was a very bad man. But Jesus rescued me. He, he changed me. 
And when that happened, I was, I was very, I was wealthy and I had a nice house and I had a wife and kids and I had all that I needed, but I was just a bad man. And when Jesus saved me, he called me and my family gave me an ultimatum. They said, you have to choose Jesus or us. He said, what could I do? He said, I chose Jesus. And so he was excommunicated. He lost his wife. He lost his kids. He lost his home. He lost his inheritance. And now he slept on the floor of this concrete church out in the middle of the boonies. And I was kind of trying to pry a little bit, just trying to really sense what he was, what he was thinking and feeling. I was like, how, did, how, was you, how, are you, how are you doing this? He goes, he saved me. What else could I do? And so for him... And for many of the believers here, their new family became the ones they, that they depended upon. So when the Bible says that they were together, they truly were acting like a family. They were together in one place and they held all things in common. Now, sometimes people will say, look, the Bible teaches that we're not supposed to own anything. The Bible teaches that we're supposed to be communal people and, and everybody's supposed to be equal in what they have. And that's not what this passage is teaching. That's communism. That's Marxism. That, that's not what the Bible is teaching. Here's how we know that. One, we know that because the Bible says in verse 45, they sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. The words in the original language of the text that are used for sold their possessions and property and the distributed, those are words that are a past, present, and future meaning. In other words, it wasn't just a one-time sold. It was a, they sold the things that they needed to sell to provide the needs that needed to be met. We also know because in chapter 5 of Acts, the Bible tells us, but a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. So there was this continual process of seeing needs and then meeting needs as God had revealed those needs. And so the scripture is not saying that none of us should own anything. It's quite the opposite. It's saying that in what we own, we should see how we can meet the needs of other people, of other believers specifically, with what God has blessed us with. And what I think is really, really neat about this is that it perhaps is one of the greatest expressions of love that we could ever possibly do. When somebody is in great need and then we come along and say, look, I'm sacrificing so your need could be met. Here's what's really hard about this passage in, in, to me in, in, in today's economy. What we really see is needs are often not needs. This is what's really, really challenging. Like needs are basic. I need to eat. I need to, a place to, to live. I need... Transportation, you know, th these are basic things. A lot of times what we say are needs is like, my couch isn't nice enough, I need something nicer, right? I mean, that, that's not a need, that's more of a want. So how we, how we work that out, that's just tough. But the bottom line is, for the people of God, we help meet each other's needs based on how God has blessed us. That's what the early church did. And the Bible then says that they, ah, my fingers need to be stickier. I've actually never licked my fingers like that. Hmm. Interesting. It doesn't actually work as well as they say it does. It just makes your Bible wet. They sold them and then every day, verse 46, every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple, broke bread. So they were in one accord and then they continued to do the work of ministry. Now, it only takes about four chapters for all of this to break down. That's it. Four chapters, because in chapter five, you have Ananias and Sapphira. They sell, they, they sell a piece of property, then they come and lie, and you know the rest of the story. They die and all that. It's, it's a horrible thing. 
And then just a few chapters past that, you have this grumbling and griping because there's prejudice within the church. There were a certain amount of Jews that were not being met. Their needs weren't being met because they were Gentiles and not Jews. And so you had this issue going on. So this unity here in the beginning of the chapter quickly ends. And we see it even more so in every church that was started out of Jerusalem. Turn, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Will you turn the house lights all the way up, please? My glasses are glaring. I can't see people. Thank you. Plus, it's easier to read with lights on. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, in the first nine verses, you have a, the typical salutation, the typical greeting. Everything's nice and cheery and great. And then verse 10 begins the real problem of why this letter is being written to the church. You want to guess what the problem is? It's division. Paul writes in verse 10, Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say, that there be no divisions among you, and that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. For it has been reported to me about you, my brothers and sisters, by members of Chloe's people, that there is rivalry among you. What I'm saying is this. One of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in Paul's name? He's laying out this argument because there's a problem in the church. The Corinthian church was in shambles because there was division. And what was the division? The division was basically ego and personality and preference and viewpoint. They had forgotten their mission and their purpose, and they had started looking inside. Now, here's what I want to say to you. As a church... For the most part, and this is especially difficult for us because we have First Baptist Story Point in Mission Casa. We're for the most part very united. But the call is not just to be united um, in, in, in action. It's to be united in heart. It's to be united in spirit. Being united is more than just not complaining. It's more than just not disagreeing. So you can be not you can be undisagreeable. Is that even a word? You, you, you can be non-disagreeable, but still not be united. For instance, if you have a husband and a wife who they uh, they decide to go to Chick-fil-A, even though they're going together to the space, if one of them doesn't have the desire to go to Chick-fil-A and even though they don't have the desire and they're going, they're, they're grumbling about it internally and they're, they're, they're ang- which I don't know why anybody would be like that anyways, but that's just an illustration. So, you know, if, if there's this, if there's this um, uh, divisive heart, even though it's not outward, the internal part of it means that there's not unity, right? So one of the dangerous things of a church is this. When we just play the part of unity and we're not genuinely unified. What does it mean to be genuinely, genuinely unified? It means that we are living together in heart, thought, mission, purpose, in harmony, in agreement. Turn, if you will, to uh, Philippians. Uh, no, no, to um, actually, give me just a second. Talk amongst yourself. Yeah, we're already there. First Corinthians chapter 10. Go to verse 10. I don't know what just happened there. That was weird. It's, I'll blame it on the eye. It's the eye. In verse 10, it says that all of you agree in what you say. That word agree 
means you are in harmony with each other. Now, what does harmony mean? It means there's peace with each other. But if you look at it from a musical perspective, it doesn't mean that you're all playing the same note. It means that you're all, we're all playing in the same key. So have you ever listened to a band or listened to a, a musical group of some sort where they did not agree on the key? They were each playing their own thing. This person in E flat, this person in G, this person in A, this person in X sharp minor. You know, there's not really an X sharp minor for those of you who don't know. That, that's a way of saying they have no, they're not even close to any key, right? If, if even, even though, so let's just say, you know, Donnie's playing the same song in one key and he's just jamming out, right? And then you got Matthew who's playing in another key and he's, both of them are playing great. They're just not on the same key. And then you got Alan over here on the bass throwing down in a different key. And then you got the drummer. Well, he don't use a key anyway, so he's all right. He's all good. You got the same song. So they're going the same direction, right? They're all playing well, which is good. But because they're in different keys, they're not in unison. And it's chaos and conflict. To get in the same key means there's the same musical scale followed. And here's what's really great about being in harmony. Unison means you're all singing the same note. Harmony means you're singing different notes that complement each other and that match each other. And it is a gift of God to hear. God created music. Music is, is in the center of the universe. It, if you were actually able to listen uh, to, to, to the universe, and you can actually do this with the, enough of the scientific uh, measuring tools, you can hear this cosmic voice. It's just incredible. You'd have to go research. It's so cool. But that is the origin of what we're talking about. We're talking about when we are in the same key, using different notes, blending them together, and it says, wow, that is something that God has done. For a church, for us to be in harmony means that we're each going to see things our own perspective. We're each going to have our own rose-colored glasses, right? For instance, let's say that there's a ministry to um, a trailer park, okay? Uh, and and, and I, I say that because I've always had an affinity towards trailer parks. I don't know why, but... But when, when I, every trailer park I've ever driven through, God has always burdened me for the folks that are living there. It's just, it's just I, I, I lived in a trailer when I was a little boy. Maybe that's where it came from. I don't know. But, but I think it's probably because a lot of times we marginalize people who are in a trailer park. Is that fair to say? A lot of times we, we look down on people who have a house with wheels. It's not right, but, but sometimes we do that, right? Here's the thing. If I'm driving through a trailer park, I want to reach them. I want to I I do whatever we can do to reach them. Of course, I feel the same way when I drive through High Point or uh, any other place. But because of my history, I'm naturally drawn to that. But you might have a different passion. So when you drive through it, you see things from a different perspective. And so you don't have the same passion. Guys, listen, that's okay. Because the truth is... When I see things from one way or when you see things from one way and the person next to you see things from another way, it actually gives you a clearer picture of what's going on. The problem is we see things from our perspective and only our perspective. Then somebody over here sees things from their perspective and only their perspective. And that causes disunity. It's like the 
six blind guys who were touching an elephant. It's an old, old illustration. A person says, you touch the elephant. What is it like? And one of them says, oh, these giant plate-like things that were squishy and yet kind of roundish, like a, like a kidney bean. The other one says, no, 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 that's not what it was. Elephant's this long, stringy thing that you rub into about, about that big around. The other one says, no, 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 no. It's this giant piece of rough um, um, skin that goes from the ground up. And so each of them was describing their own perspective of the part of the elephant that they touched, right? The truth is, you take all of those and put them together and you have a true picture of what an elephant is. Here's what God did. God said, I'm going to build a church where we've got red, yellow, black, and white. We've got rich, we've got poor. We've got educated, we've got uneducated. We have business owners, we have laborers. We have retired, we have children. It's going to be all ages, all nations, all, all skill sets, and I'm going to put them all in the same room, and I'm going to say, figure out how to love each other. And when you figure out how to love each other, you are truly being my disciples. And it's even more than that. He takes this diverse group of people and he puts them all together. And then he says, okay, you get a gift that is supernatural giftedness to do a certain thing. You get a gift that's a supernatural giftedness to do another certain thing. And you get a certain supernatural giftedness. And you're going to have something that you don't have. You're going to need what they have and they're going to need what you have. And if you keep it to yourself, you're going to rob them and you're going to rob yourself. And then he says, okay, put all of those giftednesses, to, the giftednesses together and then move as one body. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, if you go just a little bit farther, that is part of the problem as well. One says, my gift is better than yours. The other says, no, mine is. And Jesus says, no, all the gifts are from me. And I gave you what I wanted you to have so that you would use them for each other and together be a body who changes the world. Does that make sense? So the real challenge here is this. How do we move from just sitting in a seat, just, just of course, being present the first start, right? You got to be here if, if you want to be a part of the body. I mean, that's, it's, it's kind of hard to be a part of something that, that you're not present for. And then just not being here, not just being here, but also being engaged. Like your heart and your mind being in gear with what God is doing. And again, we have a mission and purpose. Now we say it this way. We exist to live and share God's story in such a way that others will believe and live and share it themselves. What are we talking about? We're talking about evangelism and discipleship. That's it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That's the gospel in a nutshell. And it's more than you and I just quoting it or saying it. It's us buying into the heartbeat of, you know what? That's why we exist. Turn, if you will now, to the gospel of John. John chapter 17. Let me, let me further demonstrate the truth of what I just said. John chapter 17, here's the situation. Jesus has been teaching the disciples and those who were listening. And as he finished up his teaching, verse seven, chapter 17, verse 1 of John, Jesus spoke these things and he looked up to heaven and said. Now, I just find that rather interesting. 
So he's, you know, it's like me preaching, and then I go, Father. Right? So, so Jesus is giving the, 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 the audience a chance to get inside of his personal space, right? They're able to, to, to observe the way that Jesus talked to his Father. And I think he was doing this intentionally. He wanted them to hear the way that he and his father communicated. He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. Since you gave him authority over all flesh. So that he may give eternal life to everyone you have given him. This is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God. And the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. I have glorified you on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with that glory I had with you before the world existed. Amazing prayer here. Essentially, Jesus said, Father, I've completed the work you've sent me to do. And the work you sent me to do is this. Redeem a lost world. You sent me to make clear what it means to have a relationship with the Father through the Son. So God, I've completed the work. Part of that work was establishing a church through the 12 disciples and those who would believe after him. And so he was saying, God, Father, you've given me all authority. And, and I've done my part while I'm on this earth. But then something happens. He shifts to the disciples in the prayer. And he, he reminds the disciples through praying that they now have been glorified by the Father. Verse 6, I've revealed your name to the people you gave me from the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you've given me is from you because I've given them the word you gave me. They've received them and have known for certain that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. Then here's what he said in verse 9. I pray for them. Could you imagine what it would be like for Jesus to pray for you? You know, there's some people in your life that when they pray for you, you're like, ooh, pray more, pray more, right? Because their prayers just seem to be powerful, right? And, and you always want them to pray for you because they seem to have a more direct connection. Could you imagine if Jesus walked in the room and then came over and laid his hand and said, can I, can I pray for you? Like, uh, yeah. I mean, would you close your eyes? Or would you, I think I would be opening my eyes. I'd be like, be like looking with one eye, right? I'd want to see what he was doing. Could you imagine just Jesus laying his hand on you and praying for you? That's what he was doing here. He said, I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you've given me because they are yours. And everything I have is yours and everything you have is mine. I am glorified in them. Listen, he said to the disciples that Jesus is glorified in them. Can I translate that for you? Their life is evidence to the goodness of God. Their life is evidence to the redemption of God. Their life is evidence to the salvation of God. I got to tell you, I, I saw a movie recently, I think on Netflix or something, and, and it was, I was intrigued because the whole theme of the movie was the unredeemable. Y'all know which one I'm talking about, don't you? Okay, now you're going to go search it. I'm not going to tell you. The whole theme of the movie was that there was a guy who was unredeemable. It was the Christmas, it was the Charles Dickens Scrooge story. The unredeemable, there's no way that, that anything good could come out of this guy. 
And as I was watching this, I was thinking to myself, that is so not true. There's not a soul who is unredeemable by the power and the grace of God. Jesus prayed for his disciples and he says to them, I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world and I'm coming to you. Then he continues to pray. And as he prays, he prays that they would be one. Now, here's the cool part. I asked you, what would it be like if Jesus prayed for you? What if I told you he did? What if I told you 2,000 years ago, Jesus prayed for you? What do you think he prayed? Father, give them strength. Father, give them courage. Father, give them hope. Father, give them peace. That wasn't the context of his prayer. You want to know what he prayed for when he prayed for you? He prayed for unity. If Jesus prayed for us 2,000 years ago, whatever he prayed must have been important. If you go in chapter 17, verse 20, he says, I pray not only for these disciples, but also for those who believe in me through their word. May they all be one. May they all be one. Why is that so important? Because in Matthew 12, we have a story where Jesus is accused of healing in the name of Satan. And Jesus' response was, that's stupid. Okay, that's not in the Greek, but that's basically what he said. He said, that's dumb. A kingdom divided against, against itself will not and cannot stand. The reason Jesus prayed for the future disciples, this one thing, Father, may they be one, is because through our togetherness, through our unity, that demonstrates a unique God-given love that cannot be duplicated anywhere else on the planet. We have something that cannot be fabricated or duplicated anywhere else on the planet because we have a love for each other that is god Given It is an agape kind of love. The rest of the world has love, but they don't have this kind of love. Why? Because they can't have it because it's a love that only comes from God. And the way that love is perfected or the way that love is demonstrated is when we are one with another. If you continue on down, he says... May they be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. I've given them the glory you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. It's like Jesus is on this repeating record. It's just over and over and over and over and over. So here's my question. If we know that the church is called to be one, if we know that as believers we're called to be one, not just present together, but actually go in the same direction with the same heart and the same mind, not in unison necessarily, but in harmony, at least in the same key. How do we do it? Because I got to be honest, I don't like everybody. Anybody? Raise your hand if you don't like everybody. The rest of you are liars. No, I'm just kidding. I mean, true. I mean, I... I don't know, I guess I like, like, I like everybody. I don't like, like everybody, right? Does that make sense? I mean, some people you just don't want to invite to your birthday party, right? I mean, as, as it was said, I'll cry at their funeral, but we ain't going on vacation with each other, right? You know what I'm talking about? How do you, 
How do, you, how do you deal with that? And you know what? I think God does it on purpose. I think God puts people in the same church who are so different from each other on purpose. You want to know why? Because I think He is sharpening us and training us for what it will be like in all of eternity. I want you to consider this. There was nobody more diverse than the first 12 disciples. If they can do it, we can do it. Think of the 12 disciples. You had fishermen, right? You had some fishermen who were very faithful and religious in Judaism, and you had others who were not so much, right? Andrew was, was very faithful in his Judaism, and Simon Peter, eh, maybe not so much. You had Thomas, who was known as the doubter. How would you like to have that tag? Oh, this is Thomas. Oh, he's the doubter. Oh, he's the faithless one, right? I mean, come on. That would be a really great way to have a label. If you walk into a party, my name is Thomas, the doubting one, right? You had Matthew, who was a tax collector. Listen, tax collectors were despised by the rest of the Jews. And here's why. A tax collector in those days, so Matthew was a Jew who was taking taxes for Rome from his fellow Jews. He was worse than a dog. Because the way it worked was this. Rome said, you'll be a tax collector. I want 5%. Whatever you collect above that is yours to keep. So the tax collector could make his own rates. He could charge them what he wanted. The more he charged them, the more money he got. But the more isolated and the more hated he was by his own people. Oh, then you have the zealot. The disciple that was the zealot was one who went around killing tax collectors and Romans. He was the one who would keep a dagger inside of his cloak and he would walk through the crowd. And when he would see someone that was the target, he would just stab him right here and maybe hit the lung and then walk away and let the person just die. So you mean to tell me that Jesus' plan for building the church was to have zealots, tax collectors, fishermen. Oh, and by the way, the fishermen, you also had two that were pretty high on themselves, so much so that they were called the sons of thunder. Remember these guys? These were the ones who came to Jesus one night and said, hey, Jesus, um, my mama told, our mama told us to ask you a question. Yeah, mommy was playing part of this deal. So when you come into your kingdom, can, can I sit on your right? My brother sit on your left. And then later on the down in the story, when the rest of the disciples heard that they asked that, they were, into, uh, they were angry. Why were they angry? Because the two asked them first, probably. You had this hodgepodge mess of disciples that Jesus called to himself. Could you imagine the squabbling that must have happened? Could you imagine the complaining and the griping? Why are we going to Jerusalem? We just got back from Jerusalem. I don't want to go to Galilee. Hey, Jesus, we have no food. Where are we going to find money to pay our taxes? I just wonder if Jesus didn't want to go. All right, fine. Forget it. We're done. I'm going to go select 12 other people. You know why he chose them? Because they needed to be redeemed just like we need to be redeemed. He chose the most diverse group of people, the most unlikely group of people to join together with one common mission, with an authority that comes from on high to change the world. That is who we are as a church.
We got teenagers in here. We got children. And by the way, children, you guys are amazing. Guys, do you notice that these kids are sitting down, listening, coloring so well? Is that not amazing? Amen. Can you give them a round of applause? I mean, seriously. That is absolutely... I'm not talking about Chloe. <laughs> I mean, seriously, well done, parents, but also kids. Well done. Well done. We got youth. We even got some senior adults, I think. I felt old the other day. We did college uh, BCM Thursday night. I was the oldest guy in the room. At 48, I was the oldest guy. I was like, are you kidding me? I am now the old dude in the room. So how do we do it? Here's how we do it. Let's finish, okay? Philippians chapter 2. The way the disciples were able to get along and literally change the world is by doing Philippians chapter 2. Verse 1, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation in love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way. In other words, Paul was writing to the Philippian church and he was saying, look, if God has done anything inside of you, if he's changed you, if he's, if he's present with you, make my joy complete by being like Christ. Here's how we stay unified. Making my joy complete, thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. The mission and the purpose is what keeps us together. When we start sidetracking off onto other missions and purposes, that's when division happens. But when we have one common enemy, by the way, the enemy is not people. The enemy is the enemy, the devil. Our problem is we make people the enemy. No, people just do things that the enemy convinces them to do. People are never the enemy. The enemy is always the enemy. He says, make myself, my joy complete, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. And then verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. This is how we stay unified. We love each other as much as we love ourselves. So if you know me, you know that I hate long walks on the beach. In fact, if I were single and I were going to write an ad to put in one of those dating sites, one thing you would never hear me say is love to take long walks on the beach. I just don't like it. I mean, the sand gets in your shoes. You got you to lift up and move through the trudgery of the sand. And if you walk too close to the water where the sand is harder, then you get your feet wet. And I just hate it. You take your shoes off. You get sand in your toenails. And you step. I, 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 I would rather a root canal than, than walk on the beach. Seriously. But once a year, I walk on the beach with my wife. Once a year. <laughs> because she loves to walk on the beach. But she didn't just love to walk on the beach. It's not like she ever goes to the beach. She just loves to walk on the beach with me. See the dilemma we have here? But the other day, against every fiber of desire in my body, I said, honey, let's go walk on the beach. And we did. And she was, in, she was just happy. Oh, she was so excited. And I was... 
I was pretending to like it. I didn't like it. But I loved making her happy. I wanted to make her happy. And so I did what I didn't want to do. Because I knew it was something she wanted to do. Silly illustration. But folks, that is the life of the church. It really is. Sometimes we do what we don't want to do. In fact, we do what we don't like to do because... It's the way that we show love to someone else within the body. You say, why should I love people who are total strangers? Because they're not strangers. They're your family. The people sitting next to you are your family. They really are. And you know what? Families are messy. Families are strange. Families have got a crazy uncle. I always like to say, I guess I'm that crazy uncle. Families have, have, have the people who, who have certain irritating things about them. And you know what? You just go, yeah, it's just them. I'll deal with it because it's just them. The way that we love each other and stay unified is to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But with humility, considering others as important as yourself. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. It's asking yourself, what can I do to love them the way that they need to be loved? Guys, here's the challenge we have. The challenge is to stay unified as we go. The, the enemy works in this way. I don't know if you know this, you should by now. He first tries to divide the church. He puts all kinds of secondary, tertiary issues amongst us. And he tries to get us to squabble. And he tries to break relationships. And he wins a lot of those battles. And if he can't break a church that way, he moves to the next layer and he goes to the leadership. And he causes the leadership to be divided. Because when the leadership is divided, the whole church falls. Next week, that's what we're talking about is leadership. But you can believe me when I tell you this. The thing that is most difficult and most important in my ministry as the pastor here is to keep our leadership team together. We have to fight for it. Because we're people too. Because the best way to kill a snake is to what? Cut off the head. Here's the good news. The good news is Jesus wouldn't have asked us to do it if it wasn't possible. It starts with you and it starts with me. Do each of us our own part. This morning I want to encourage you to examine your own heart. Listen, I know that that there are a lot of passages here, and I know that you, you kind of had to follow the progression here, but what I really want you to see is that unity is important. But unity is more than just saying, I'm here. It's actually being unified in heart and in purpose. I want to ask you to learn to love each other, to give each other grace. And in doing so, the world will know that we are his disciples. We close your eyes and bow your head for just a moment. If you're in this place today, I want to invite you to trust Jesus Christ. If you're watching by way of TV or by Facebook, I want to invite you to give your life to Jesus.
The Bible says that it's by grace that we're saved through faith, not of works. You can't earn it. You can't buy it. Your, your good cannot outweigh your bad. The kingdom of God is full of debtors who cannot pay their own debt, but who've trusted Jesus who paid that debt for them. I want to invite you to trust Him today. This morning, if there's some angst that you have towards another person, I want to invite you just to make that right. Chances are they don't even know that you're mad at them. Don't hold on to it. Life is too short for that. This morning, if God has called you to something else, make some other decision, I invite you to do that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your patience with us. Thank you for calling 12 disciples who are so radically different that you could illustrate for us what it means to be a church in 2022. Father, we yield ourselves to you. We, we trust you. Not just with our, um, not, not just with this hour, but God, we trust you with our life. Father, I pray that whatever it is each of us is wrestling with, Whatever it is we're struggling with, God, I pray that you would help us to turn to you and place that, that weight upon you. And I ask this for your namesake, for your glory. Find out more about First Baptist Church, go freeze at FBC Gold.